Our Bible reading tonight comes from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, and we're reading verses 1 to 15. And let us hear the word of the Lord. And it came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered, and said unto them, Go, and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word. There's times in life whenever things don't quite go as we expect. You might plan that great holiday and you arrive at the destination suddenly to find out that the reality of where you are is very different from the picture that you were promised in the travel brochure. You might buy that nice new car and enjoy it for the first couple of miles only to find out that the, the seat isn't quite as comfortable as the one that you sat in in the test drive. Uh, you might get married and then you might find out that suddenly your wife isn't the great cook that you thought she was whenever uh, you were dating. There's times in life that things don't quite meet our expectations and there's times that people don't meet our expectations either. That man who entered you for the job might seem very nice at the interview but then whenever you have to work for him he might turn out to be a bit of a grump uh, and a miserable boss. There's times in life that people can fail to meet our expectations as well. But what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there ever a time that he can fail to meet our expectations? Well, this certainly seemed to be the case with John the Baptist. Now, a few words about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was described as the Lord Jesus Christ as being the greatest among men. He said, of all the men, there's none greater than John the Baptist. 
He is the youngest recorded believer. In fact, he was a miracle child. His parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias, were in great old age whenever uh, John came. He was the child that never should have been. So he was a miracle child. He had a miraculous beginning. He was also the youngest recorded believer uh, that ever uh, we know of. Uh, whenever Elizabeth told Mary that she was uh, pregnant with John, uh, or sorry, whenever Mary told Elizabeth that she was pregnant with the Savior and the Messiah, it says that John leapt in Elizabeth's womb as, uh, for joy uh, at the news of the Savior. So he's the youngest recorded believer. But he was a mighty man as well. We are, we're told that he, had, he was a humble man. He lived in the wilderness. His uh, diet was locusts and wild honey. We were having family devotions the other night and I was explaining to my uh, children the diet of John the Baptist and they were horrified that he would eat locusts and uh, the lengths that he would go to to get wild honey out of the beehive. And then I told them that he was dressed. He was girt about with a camel's uh, 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 apron. And uh, whenever we think of camel skin, how rough it is, uh, this was the attire that John chose to wear. But he was a humble man. He was a fearless man. He preached to the religious leaders of the day, and he didn't hold back. He didn't shy away from preaching the truth of the gospel to them, even though in those days, opposing the religious leaders uh, could, uh, could lead to your certain death, as our Savior found out, as the early apostles found out. No, John was a fearless man, and he preached the gospel with power. He saw many converted. He, he performed baptisms and saw many uh, come and repent of their sins and experience baptism. He was a holy man of God. Set apart from the world, he lived a completely separated life. And he was a man of great faith. He knew the Messiah was coming. He knew that he was to be the forerunner. And when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on uh, that day uh, down by the water, John knew full well that this was the Savior. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He believed that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Savior and Messiah. He was the last ever prophet of the Old Testament. Now you're saying, well, how, do, how can we read about him in the New Testament then? Well, the Old Testament ran until our Savior's ministry started. So John was the last Old Testament prophet. He was a mighty man. But then whenever we come into verse 3 of our passage here today, we see that John the Baptist is in prison. And he was in prison for his preaching. Because he told Herod, Herod, it's wrong for you to have your brother Philip's wife. You shouldn't have her as your wife. And that led to his arrest and being put in prison. Now imagine for a moment that you're John. And you're used to living out in the wilderness and out in the desert. That wide open space, sleeping under the stars. And suddenly you find yourself in a um, cramped dungeon probably wet and cold, where you barely have room to stretch out. And that's where John found himself now. And how that must have uh, agitated him, how it must have distressed him, those changing circumstances, knowing that he was there and all he had done was preach the truth that God had given him. And he's wound up in prison. And as he's sitting in prison, thoughts start to run around in his head. Why am I here? And why isn't Jesus 
doing something to help me. Why isn't he coming along and helping me in this terrible predicament that I find myself? Why isn't he coming and getting me out of the prison? I don't hear of him persuading the magistrate to let me go on the grounds that I'm innocent. I hear that he's helping other people. He's giving sight to the blind. He's healing lepers. Why isn't he helping me? Jesus is doing all these other things for other people and he's not helping me. Will these thoughts begin to manifest in, in John's mind to such an extent that he communicates them with his disciples? And I imagine there was a discussion had with his disciples. And then the discussion then leads to the disciples of John going and asking the Lord Jesus Christ this very serious question. Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Are you the Messiah that we have been waiting for? Or should we go and look elsewhere? You see, in this instance, the Lord Jesus Christ was failing to meet the expectations that John had of him. Up until that point, I venture to say there wasn't anybody who had faith like John the Baptist. But now that he's in a time of trouble... Now that he's in a time of affliction and persecution, now that the circumstances of life are going against him, John begins to doubt. And his doubt grows to such an extent that he has the audacity, the nerve, to really ask that question, are you the saviour or not? Because you're not meeting the expectations I have of what a saviour is. You know there's times dear friends. When you and I. Can be guilty. Of behaving like John the Baptist. Now we might not confess it openly. Even to other people. But inwardly. It happens to us. If it can happen to John the Baptist. Of whom the saviour said. There's none greater. <clears throat> then dear friend it can happen. To us. I want to speak on the subject tonight of our expectations of Jesus Christ. Our expectations of Jesus Christ. Let me begin first of all by asking what expectations do people have of Jesus Christ? Now there's a few different groups that we're going uh, to think upon uh, here tonight. The first group have the expectation that Jesus Christ is merely there to fix all their problems in life. They have a money problem. Jesus Christ is there to fix it. I remember I wasn't long converted. I was a student uh, living in England, working in a cafe, and I met this girl, and she was from Taiwan, and she professed to be a Christian, and we got talking about different things. And she said, yes, I've been a Christian for four years, I think she said. And in that time, I have prayed three times. And I thought, you've been a Christian for four years and you've only prayed three times. And I asked her about this and she said, yes, I prayed when I had this problem and I prayed when I had that problem and I prayed when I had this other problem. And I prayed and God helped me. And I said, that's very good that you Turn to the Lord when you have problems. But being a Christian isn't just about turning to God whenever we had problems. And this was completely new to her. She had never heard of this before. 
But sadly, dear friends, there are people who think like this. I have money problems. Now's the time I really have to start praying. I have a health problem. I've got bad news from the doctor. I better tune into my prayer life. I have family problems. Never prayed for my children the whole time they uh, were uh, in the house. But now that they've gone out into the world, I better start praying for them. There are some people and they only turn to Jesus whenever they have a problem. And of course, this is the great fault of these charismatic churches. They get people into church under the illusion that come to church and Jesus will heal you of all your physical diseases and help you with your ailments. As long as it's only a frozen shoulder and it's nothing serious like cancer, they can help you, so they claim. And yet how many people leave disappointed? They have these mass crusades and people queue up for hours to try and get on the stage and the platform with the miracle healer. And more people leave disappointed than healed. There's people and their expectation of Jesus Christ is that he is only there to fix their problems. Dear friend, maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're come along to the meeting. Maybe you're tuning into the meeting. And you think, I need help. And in my time of help, I'll turn to Jesus Christ. There's another group of people. And their expectation of Jesus Christ is that he should be uh, correcting the social, moral, and political ills of society. They think that Jesus Christ should just be uh, uh, come into our parliament and suddenly overthrow these wicked laws and, and that Jesus Christ should be from top down converting this nation to Christianity. And they have that expectation of Jesus Christ that all these immoral laws, and we're not downplaying them, they are very wicked and immoral, but that Jesus Christ should just come and overthrow the government and, and change all the laws. And this is reflected even in their conversation and behavior. Their interest is more in the political rather than the spiritual. And sadly, there's people get very annoyed whenever Jesus Christ does not change the ungodly laws of our nation. And there's another group. They look at Jesus Christ as their own personal genie, if you'll forgive the phrase, but I can't think of a better one. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the concept of a genie. You rub the magic lamp and the genie gives you your three wishes, whatever your heart desires. There's many people think of Jesus Christ in that fashion. They say, well, I prayed for it, so Jesus better give it to me. It's this whole culture of name it and claim it. I prayed for it, I better get it, and if I don't get it, I'm going to be mighty annoyed with God. Sadly, we can all be guilty of that. To a greater or lesser extent, can we not? Well, I prayed for it. Why hasn't God granted my prayer? Why hasn't God helped me? It doesn't matter whether our prayers are according to Scripture or whether our prayers are according to the will of God. I want it. Therefore, I better get it. We can behave like children in that regard with our Heavenly Father. And there's another group of people, and their expectation of Jesus is that he is there to be that cool saviour who lets you do what you want. 
Their expectation of Jesus is that Jesus has died for their sins, so therefore they're free to live how they like. They're free to live that immoral, ungodly lifestyle. They're free to engage in drunkenness. They're free to engage in sexual immorality. They're free to engage in gossiping and slandering and backbiting and, uh, and, and stealing, not paying their taxes and so on. You can live how you like because Jesus has died for my sins. Therefore, there's no law for me to keep. Well, dear friends, in theological terms, that's called antinomianism, living without the law. But that's not right. Because Christians are still under the law. There's three different types of law we find in the Bible. There's the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, the offerings and sacrifices, but they were only temporary until Christ came and his full and final offering was made at Calvary. That's why there's no more shedding of blood. The second law is the civil law of Israel, stoning adulterers and so on. That was the civil law of Israel. That doesn't apply to us today, although certainly there's great wisdom in, in, in many parts of it that we're free to apply. But the third law is the moral law. That is summed up in the Ten Commandments. And the moral law still applies today. Think about it rationally. If the moral law doesn't apply today, does that mean that you're free to commit murder? Does that mean that you're free to commit adultery? That you're free to take the name of the Lord in vain? That you're free to break the Sabbath day by going shopping or to a restaurant or on a plane or something like that? No, of course not. The moral law still applies today. If it doesn't, then dear friends, we're in great confusion. But that's how many people think of Jesus Christ. Jesus has died for my sins, therefore I can live and do as I please, and I'll get into heaven. And they walk about as, as if they've got that profession in their hip pocket that says, you're okay, Jesus has saved you. Live that immoral, ungodly lifestyle. That's the expectation many people have of Jesus, that he is the Savior who says, that's okay, it's all fine. But it's not. Another group of people, and I'll finish with this or we'll be here all night. There's a lot of different groups we could look at. Another group of people, they think of Jesus as the one who should always be providing that spiritual and emotional ecstasy. It's as if they always want to be on the mountaintop. They always want to be happy and joyful. They never want to have any trouble or care. And whenever trouble or care does come, well, we know who gets the blame for that. And there's many people and they look at Christianity in that regard. That Jesus should always be making me happy. I remember having lunch with a woman uh, after I preached at her church one Lord's Day. It wasn't her church, she wasn't the minister. But uh, she had me along to her church uh, for lunch after uh, I preached there. And uh, she was telling me her testimony and she was saying for years... She used to go along to a Pentecostal church. Now, this woman had some very serious problems in her life. Uh, her husband abandoned her. She was on the verge of bankruptcy and so on. And she went along to the church and she said, when the music was blasting and the band was playing and the singing was going, she said, I forgot all my troubles and my worries. I was the happiest person in the world for the hour that I was in church. She says, after I left, all my problems were very real again. And she said, I never...
uh, what it was really to to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I never knew what it was to, uh, to, to come to him and unburden my heart to him and to trust him and to love him and to know that he would see me through those valley experiences. She said, the only thing I cared for was having uh, all those worries blanked out of my mind. And there's many people, their expectation of Jesus is that he should just blank out all their problems and all their troubles. But dear friend, can I tell you tonight that the place where Jesus Christ draws nearest to you and where you draw nearest to him is down in the valley. Whenever you're going through those trials and temptations and those afflictions and persecutions, that is the time you draw nearest to the Savior and that is the time when you know him upholding you by his sovereign power. What expectation do you have of Jesus Christ? I ask you here tonight, what is your expectation of him? Maybe you're here tonight and you fall into one of those categories that I've shared with you. Well, dear friend, you wouldn't be the first. At various times in my life, I can probably say that I have fallen into some of those categories. Even in our Savior's day, there were people who had the wrong expectation of him. Think of the wise men who came at the news of his birth. Where did they go? What was their expectation of where Jesus Christ would be born and living? Well, they thought it would be in Herod's palace, but it wasn't. It was in Bethlehem, in the manger. But they had that wrong expectation that he would be there. Judas Iscariot had the expectation that Jesus Christ was going to have a political kingdom and overthrow the Romans and establish that earthly kingdom. But he didn't. And when Jesus Christ did not meet the expectations of Judas Iscariot, he went and betrayed him. He had the wrong expectation of him. Herod Whenever Jesus Christ was arrested, called for him to be brought before him. So he left Pilate's house. He went before Herod. Herod wanted to see great miracles happen. But Jesus Christ didn't say a single word to Herod. His expectation of Jesus wasn't met. Simon the sorcerer wanted the magical powers, the apostolic powers to give the Holy Ghost. He had the wrong expectation what it was to be a Christian. What's your expectation of the Savior? Moving on here tonight, let us look secondly at where our expectations of Jesus come from. And sad to say that in uh, many instances, the expectations of Jesus, although they should come from the Bible, they don't. They come from our own hearts. We can be guilty, dear friends, of our own impression of creating, sorry, creating our own impression of who Jesus Christ is and what he should be doing in our lives. So we have a Jesus Christ who is fashioned according to what we think he should be doing. We create our own expectations. We create our own ambitions and desires of how we want him to act in our lives. Have you ever met a person uh, that you've heard good things about or that you may be seen in the TV or something like that and you meet that person and suddenly that person doesn't meet your expectation. 
they're not as tall as you thought you were or, or as you thought they were or they're not as nice as they maybe appeared in other circumstances. That person failed to meet your expectations. You maybe went to a doctor. You heard great things about that doctor, but he did great things for other people. Hasn't done great things for you. You see, dear friend, we can be guilty of not have, or of creating our own impression of who we think Jesus Christ is and what we think he should be doing. So the correction to this is, where do our expectations of Jesus come from? The correction is the Bible. Our expectation of Jesus Christ should come from the word of God. What the Bible tells us about him and what, who he is and what he plans for our life, our expectation should come from the truth of God's word and not from our own mind and not from our own heart, not from our own invention. What the Bible says about Jesus Christ is what we believe. What the Bible says forms our expectations of him. Now, that means that in order for you and I to have a biblical expectation of who Jesus Christ is, we need to read our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. We need to study our Bibles. Let me say clearly and simply here tonight, you cannot have a biblical expectation of Jesus Christ if you don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. That means, dear friend, that you have to put hard work into reading and studying your Bible. You need to read it. You need to pray over it. You will never know Jesus Christ outside these sacred pages. He's not going to appear to you in a dream or a vision. He's not going to turn up in your living room one night. Dear friend, the only way that you will meet with the risen Christ is through this book. So to have a biblical expectation of Jesus, you need to read your Bible. Study the word. As Paul said to Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. And nobody will ever say on their deathbed, I regret spending so much time reading my Bible. No, dear friend, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I, many will say, I regret not spending more time listening to God speak to me through his word. So, our expectations of Jesus should come from his word. Thirdly here tonight, what do we do when Jesus does not meet our expectations? What do we do when our expectations of the Savior are not met? Well, we do a couple of things very quickly. First of all, we doubt him. We had that expectation that Jesus would help us with that problem. We've prayed for it time and time again, and Jesus hasn't answered so maybe we respond like John the Baptist and we say, are you the Savior? Are you the Messiah? Because you're not helping me like I want you to. Maybe our faith in him decreases. Not for salvation. We trust him for salvation. But for guidance, for assistance, for help getting through our difficulties. Whenever... I was in Scotland. I was doing some outreach in a town called Banff. And I was going door to door. And there was a man out in his garden. And I got talking to him. And I started witnessing to him. 
And he said, you know, I used to go to church. In fact, I used to be an elder in the local church. But he says, then I stopped going. And I said, well, do you mind me asking why you stopped going? And he said, well, in the 1980s, my business hit a very difficult period. He says, I turned to God and I prayed for God to help me. And he said, God didn't help me. And I said, well, what happened to your business? He said, well, I was able to turn things around. It was difficult for a few years, but I got it sorted and I got my business back on track and, and we pulled through. And I said, well, do you not see that that was God helping you through that difficult period, that God gave you the wisdom that you needed, that God gave you the perseverance to stick it out, that, that God got your business back on track? Oh, and the man started to get very angry. He said, it wasn't God who helped me. It was me who helped me. He said, God didn't help me when I called upon him. I had to tough it out. Poor man couldn't see that it was God helping him. But because God didn't answer at the click of his fingers, and because God didn't do things the way this man wanted, this man said himself, I stopped believing. I resigned as an elder. I stopped going to church. And then he told me that he was having a humanist funeral. Whenever God fails to meet an expectation, that is the response of some. They stop believing. Another response that people have when Jesus doesn't meet their expectation is that they distance themselves from him. Uh, it's a bit like a child who's sulking because the parent won't let them go and play in the park or the parent won't let them have chocolate for dinner. We, as children of God, can sulk with our Heavenly Father. Well, God isn't answering my prayers in the way that I want, so I'm going to stop talking to Him. I'm going to stop praying. I'm going to stop reading my Bible and hearing his voice in the pages of Scripture because God isn't doing what I want. I'm withdrawing myself from him. And you know, it's very obvious whenever that happens. Your minister can discern it. Even as he's standing in the pulpit preaching, he can discern those who have pulled back from God. Maybe attendance at the prayer meeting becomes more and more infrequent. Maybe time at home spent in the closet disappears completely. We distance ourselves from him. Another thing we can do is look for a replacement or a substitute. Whenever Jesus Christ doesn't meet our expectations, there's a group of people and they look for a replacement for Jesus. That's what John the Baptist and his disciples were preparing to do. Art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Another one who will satisfy our expectations. And there's many people who do that. Well, Jesus Christ isn't filling my life with joy, so I'll turn on the television and I'll spend countless hours watching all this nonsense of the day, hoping that it'll give me some sort of satisfaction. I'll engage in carnal activities and and recreation, and not that there's things wrong with those in measure, but I'll fill my day with them, and maybe they'll give me some satisfaction because Jesus is not meeting my needs. 
well, I'll stop going to that church that's always preaching because it's really getting to me and I'll go somewhere that's a bit more lively and entertaining because, you know, that's really what I want, to, to silence the word of God and to be amused and entertained. Sadly, there's many and they look for a replacement whenever Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. Well, fourthly and finally tonight here, what should our expectation of Jesus Christ be? We know our expectation of him should come from the Bible, but what should our expectation of him be? Now, dear friends, I'm not downplaying the personal problems that we have in life. They are very real and they're very serious and they keep us up at night and they cause us a great amount of distress. I'm not downplaying them at all. But I tell you tonight that for the believer, Jesus Christ has dealt with our greatest problem. He has dealt with our most serious problem. He has dealt with a problem that you and I would endure for all eternity. And it is the problem of our sin and the punishment of that sin by a holy and righteous God. The greatest problem that you've ever had in life, dear friend, is the problem of your separation from God. Because of your sins and your iniquities. Your, the Bible says your sins have alienated you from God. And that is so true. Without Jesus Christ, you're a million miles away from God with no hope of being reconnected. So Jesus Christ came into this world and he dealt with our greatest problem, the problem of our sin. How did he deal with it? Well, he dealt with it by taking our sin upon his own body and soul. He dealt with it by taking our sin to that cross of Calvary. He dealt with it by enduring the wrath of his heavenly Father and suffering the agonies and torments of hell in the believer's place. So that you and I could be reconciled to God. So that our sins could be blotted out. So that you and I could have that assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that you and I can stand before our God without spot or stain of sin. And so that you and I can enter into heaven. Our greatest problem has been dealt with. And it was dealt with at Calvary. So our expectation of Jesus Christ is this, and it should be this, dear friend. If we're a believer, this needs to be the expectation of all those who are listening here tonight. Our expectation is that Jesus came into the world and he lived that perfect life on our behalf. He came to this world and having lived that perfect life, he died an atoning death in our place. But that isn't it. Our expectation of Jesus is, as the Bible says, he rose again. And having rose from the dead, he triumphed over death and triumphed over hell for all of his people. So our expectation of Jesus is this. I don't need to fear death. I don't need to fear the wrath of God because my Savior has walked through that valley of the shadow of death for me. And though this mortal body may die one day and lie in the ground, it will be raised uncorrupted. And taken forever to heaven. Our expectation of Jesus Christ is that he's coming back for us. He's coming back. He says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, ye may be also. So Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. 
And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. So our expectation of him is that this very day, in all of our problems, in all of our trials, in all of our afflictions, our God is praying for us. He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Dear friend, today the Bible says you're graven upon the palms of his hands. He's watching over you. He's praying for you. He's coming again for you. That is our glorious expectation of Jesus Christ. We're not left alone. Our Savior is with us. Well, coming to a close here tonight, John the Baptist had his role in the kingdom But the Lord was drawing his time on earth here to an end. He had his ministry. And now the Lord was preparing to take him to heaven. John couldn't see this. He didn't know that. But the Lord didn't reveal it to him. But John was called to trust and believe. And dear friend, we maybe don't know why we have to go through the valley. Why we have to go through the floods. But he has said, when thou passest through the floods, I will be with thee. They shall not overcome thee. So you and I are called to satisfy ourselves in him. The apostle Paul said, looking on to Jesus. Is that your experience here tonight? Are you looking on to him? We tend to plan ahead. We tend to worry about the future. We tend to think about the life that we want But dear friend, the only thing that really matters at the end of the day is that you and I have found and experienced the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and that we walk with him. Can I ask tonight, and I don't know what expectation you came into the meeting with of Jesus Christ, but can I ask, as we get ready to close this meeting, what is your expectation of him? Maybe you're listening tonight and you're saying well I'm not saved maybe you're listening tonight and you say I'm not a Christian I don't really want to be sounds like uh, it's going to spoil all my fun well let me say you have this certain expectation of Jesus Christ awaiting you in the future I can tell it to you now the Bible says he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man That man's the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have this certain expectation that Jesus Christ is going to be your judge one day. But dear friend, it is possible and it's necessary that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior today. And then you need not fear that day of judgment. If you come to know Jesus Christ and your expectation is that he has done all these things for me, he's taken my sin upon himself, he's reconciled me to God, He shed his blood for the forgiveness of all of my sins, your expectation is that Jesus Christ will say these words to you. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Surely those are the words that we all want to hear. But let me say, dear friend, you'll only hear them if you're born again. You'll only hear them if you're saved. You'll only hear them if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior.